0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. I would encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Lord willing, today we will finish up Acts chapter 17. Maybe you're new or maybe you don't have your own copy of God's Word. I would encourage you to look in the chairs around you. You should look for a smaller black book. And I would encourage you to grab that to follow along with us. That is our gift to you today. We hope that you'll take it home and read it. I would encourage you to start in the Gospel of John there in the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 32. It wasn't too long after receiving my driver's license, probably somewhere around halfway through age 16, when I got my first job the door was open for me to work at God's gift to Mexican fast food, the one, the only, Taco Bell. Now, throughout my junior and senior year in high school, I worked part-time at the Taco Bell in Marietta, Ohio. And for all the blame and for all the nasty things that are said about working at fast food, let me tell you, it was a great first job for me and taught me a lot of valuable lessons that I've taken throughout my life. I enjoyed working with the people there. I enjoyed the fast-paced nature of getting orders out and I really appreciated how they would work with my schedule and how they would give me regular hours as I was a reliable employee for them. I made several friends during my time there and one of those friends was a young man for today will name Mike. Now, Mike was a college student who attended a local college very similar to Ohio Wesleyan here in town. In fact, they play them in sports. And he would work there during the weekends when he didn't have classes. Me, being a junior in high school, I thought Mike was a really cool guy. And occasionally, we would get to work the drive-through together on the weekends. I believe that for pretty much the entire time that I knew Mike, He knew that I was planning on, after finishing high school, going to college and studying for the ministry, and I knew that Mike didn't have any type of religious background whatsoever. Faith was something that we would occasionally talk about, but admittedly, I never really did a good job sharing my faith with Mike, and it was something that I really wasn't too intentional with to my detriment at that point in my life. I remember one night, though, as is often the case on the weekends, it was a busy night in the drive-through, and I was working with Mike, and during the shift, I believe the topic of evolution or something about God's creation of the Earth came up, and Mike asked me if I truly believed what the Bible said on this topic. I affirmed that I did to Mike, and Mike, in a non-aggressive, curious tone, challenged me on that he asked me why i believed this to be true and he told me that he had studied evidence contrary to it that he would share with me on it and mike did share some of those things with me and we talked about it a little bit but admittedly between trying to get taco orders out the window and just being probably dumbfounded because for the first time in my life someone really challenged me about what I believe, I didn't really do a good job responding to Mike. I'm sure for many of you, just like me, you can point to a time in your life where you wish you would have done a better job addressing someone's curiosity about your faith. You wish you would have done a better job responding, and why do you believe what you believe? And today, we're going to see an example from the Apostle Paul on how to respond when someone who holds different beliefs than you is curious about what you believe without being hostile towards it. We find that here in Acts chapter 17, and we're gonna start by reading verses 16 through 21. They share with us this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We find ourselves today in the final third of the three-year span of Paul's second missionary journey. As we concluded our time last week, just before this in the text, we saw Paul departing from Silas and Timothy in Berea, after frustrated Jews from Thessalonica stirred up and agitated crowds in that area. Now, here on this map on the screen, we first see Paul at the top star there. And we see Paul then moving to the bottom star there in Athens, which is a long journey of at least close to 250 miles. And we aren't sure if Paul made it to Athens on land or on foot, But we know either way, it's going to be a long journey there. Now, Paul was here waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. And because of the distance, it's going to take some time for them to get there. But Paul was intentional with that time. And he set his focus to where he found himself. And he sought to minister to the people there. And interestingly, as he does so, As we see Paul's example here, this is going to be one of the very few times in the book of Acts where we see a follower of Jesus Christ going at his mission solo. Oftentimes, we we see the other apostles going together in pairs or with more of them going and preaching and teaching and ministering to people. This is one of the few times where we see Paul proclaiming the good news by himself. And so as we find ourselves here in Athens, we see that Athens is the capital of Greece, a city that was known for its art, for its culture, for its architecture, its education, and its religion. The city, by the time that Paul made it here, had lost a little bit of its luster, but it was still very influential both then and as well throughout history as you or I could go to many renowned museums today and see Athenian artwork or architecture. As well, we could see philosophies as throughout history, we could see many of them philosophers calling Athens home, including Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Athens was an incredibly important piece in the history of the world And it was an incredibly cultural place that Paul found himself here in this text. And the first thing that we see in it is that the art and architecture that Paul saw here in Athens reflected the polytheistic worship of that area. Now Athens was known all over the world for its magnificent art, for its beautiful architecture, And yet, this architecture, this art, reflected what the people believed, and that's in what we call polytheism, or polytheism is a belief or worship in more than one God. Now, we believe in what's called monotheism, or one God. But as we see here, these people believed in multiple gods. And as Paul went through this land, and as he saw these people and their artwork and their architecture, it shares with us in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. Now this isn't referring to the Holy Spirit, but instead to this burden that Paul had that he felt inside of himself because of these images that he saw. In fact, if we were to look at the original Greek word there, what it literally means is that Paul was infuriated. He was frustrated. He was burdened by these idols that he saw. He walked through this city and saw art and architecture made by some of the best craftsmen and artists of the time. And yet all of it portrayed false gods and goddesses, things that they believed in, And historical record shows us that marketplaces such as this were literally lined with these. Paul's was frustrated as he saw these things. William Arnott, in the Believer's Bible Commentary is where I got this from, says it was not that he, that Paul, valued marble statues less, but living men more. He is not the weak, but the strong man who regards immortal souls as transcendently more important than fine arts. Paul did not consider idolatry picturesque and harmless, but grievous. What Paul saw grieved him. So what was his response to this then? Well, he met with these people and he shared good news. And so we see that these people believed in polytheistic worship, in the worship of multiple gods. But we also see that the people of Athens reflected its worship and that Paul met with these people and learned quite a bit about them. It shares with us in verse 17 and continuing on that he met with these people in two different places. Verse 17 says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, So first, we see that Paul met with religious people in the synagogue. And there in the synagogue, he would meet and share the truth of Jesus being the Messiah to the Jews and the devoutly religious it shares with us, or those are the God-fearing Gentiles. This was his normal method of sharing. He would go to the synagogue, he would share with them. He would often reference back to the Old Testament to build rapport with these people and to confirm what he shared with them and how Jesus was the answer. He was the bringer of the new covenant. This was his normal method of sharing, yet the focus of this text moves off that very quickly and moves to the other people that Paul was able to reach As secondly, we see that he reaches scholars and everyone else in the marketplace. So it shares with us in 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I appreciate Paul's consistency there. And every day he would go to the marketplace And the marketplace was known as the business, political, and legal center there in Athens. If you had something to sell or if you had something to say, that's where you went. And notice Paul's evangelistic strategy. Paul knew that his audience in the synagogue would be religious and that he wouldn't have a ton of time with them in their gathered meetings. He wanted to reach more than just the religious folks in the areas, so he moved to the marketplace because he didn't want to reach just the religious people. He wanted to reach everyone. And Paul spent his ministry time there where he likely knew there were going to be the largest amount of people worshiping these false idols. And this led to a conversation with the philosophers there of the day. It shares with us in verse 18 that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And see, we, so we see here that there are two different types of philosophers that Paul would reach. The first is the Epicurean philosophers. These are the people that would say that life is about making myself happy and about avoiding pain. Epicureanism says that the chief end of man is pleasure and happiness. And these people who held to this philosophy believe that God may exist, but that he isn't intimately involved in creation. God, if we believe in him, created us, but then he stepped away. And so my life's purpose now is to be focusing On making myself happy and getting as much pleasure as I possibly can and avoiding pain here on this earth. Next, though, we see the Stoic philosophers. And the Stoic philosophers said that life is about being the best person I can possibly be, that I can continuously self improve. These people would say that we cannot have control over the events that happen to us, but we can control how we approach these things. These were people that would say that money, fame, reputation, and material things aren't good or bad in and of themselves, but virtue and how you use these things is the only true good. Now, as we look at this philosophy, it's not necessarily a bad philosophy, but it isn't connected to Christianity. It's a humanistic philosophy that focuses primarily on the created, on us, instead of on the creator, on God. And so oftentimes those people who followed this philosophy were incredibly self-focused, trying to be very self-sufficient. Stoics were often much more mystical than Epicureans, and they often believed in a divine figure or figures that connected to nature So they were very mystical, but they did not hold to the God that they read about in the Bible. So they would often then give their worship to their false gods and then work as hard as they could to try to make sure that they were doing their part. Now Paul's message was much different than the one shared by either of these philosophies. So it's interesting that these philosophers called him, it tells us in verse 18, a babbler. It says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. That word babbler comes from the phrase, one who picks up seeds. Or it suggested that Paul was a person who was sharing ideas that he didn't fully understand, but that he just picked up pieces of. Actually, the illustration that they use is like a chicken picking at seeds. Paul was an amateur philosopher, picking at philosophies, constructing one in and of himself that he didn't fully understand yet. He was a little bit simple. And so I think it's easy for us to look at this text now and say, these guys were a little too smart for their own good. But yet something that Paul shared intrigued these men. They said that preaching, that he could either be picking at seeds or that he could possibly be going after foreign divinities that were new ideas and that were completely foreign to them, and that interests him. Because it shared, then, an invitation that Paul couldn't refuse. It shares with them in 19 that it took, they took him and brought him to the Eropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Paul had an opportunity to meet, next we see, with the authorities in the Eropagus. Now the Eropagus meant the hill of Ares, And Ares was the Greek god of war. Some also call this location, you've probably heard of it, Mars Hill. It rose high above the marketplace, but it wasn't too far away. And at this hill, there would be a large table where a court met that was the authority over the civil and religious life there in Athens. Paul, by this point, was used to being persecuted by his faith, but as best we can tell... That he wasn't going to be persecuted here, but instead they asked him to share more so that they could understand these, stra- these strange doctrines that they hadn't heard that he preached. Now we don't know this for sure, but it is likely that these authorities would determine if Paul would be able to continue to preach and to share his message in Athens, or if he would be silenced from doing so. But if you know the Apostle Paul at all, I can promise you that a couple guys telling him you can't share the good news isn't going to do much to stop him. So Paul had this opportunity to share this message with the authorities, but not just the authorities, but as well to curious listeners. Looking at verse 21 there, it shares with us, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Not only would he share this message with the authorities there, but he would share them with curious listeners. As this was basically one of the ancient intellectual centers for the world during that day, many of the residents would have been interested with what Paul shared, these new ideas and so they would have loved to have heard and debate these new philosophies and ideas at the last as the last part of 21 shares with us. Paul had a captive audience here. And as we'll see in a few minutes, he made the most with that. But before we get there, let me say this, that the opportunity that Paul had in many ways parallels the opportunities that you and I often have to be able to share our faith with other people today. We see elements of the philosophies of Epicureanism and Stoicism regularly today. Now let's talk about that with my friend, Mike. Now, Mike and I stayed friends after our time in Taco Bell. We occasionally would see each other and talk, and we did a couple times about our worldviews and our faith, And the Lord later opened the doors to some better conversations with him. But to the best of my knowledge to this day, Mike has not trusted in Jesus Christ for his salvation, and he really hasn't given a lot of thought into Christianity. Now, that being said, I remember that he was studying computer science there at our hometown at the local college. And I once asked him what his goal was in his profession. And I still remember that Mike straight up emphatically told me that his one goal through his profession was simply to make a lot of money. Bluntly, he told me, I want to study computer science and I want to get rich. And his belief, he shared with me, was that the main goal from his profession should be to morally make as much money as he could. And as he did that, from the Epicurean standpoint the standpoint that says life is about maximizing happiness, it's about avoiding pain, he believed that money and the security it provided would keep him happy and would help him to avoid pain as much as he could. Now, all of us at times could name someone with a similar mindset, but it's something that can infect our thinking at times as well. As there's this tendency that people often have to look at the difficulties that others are experiencing and to compare the amount of resources or wealth that they think they have with those struggles. I'm sure you, like I, at times could have been caught up in the thinking where we say, oh, that person is going through a terrible tragedy. And we sympathize with them but then we think to ourselves, well, that person has a lot of money that's going to help comfort them through that struggle. Now, it doesn't have to be money. It could be anything. Fill in the blank with something that we believe can help give us the maximum amount of happiness and help us to avoid pain as much as possible. Yet that mindset of believing a lot of money or a lot of resources can comfort us and make our lives less painful Shades of that philosophy are found there in Epicureanism. But yet there's also people that we know who hold to more of a stoic philosophy in life. And these are the people that you constantly see posting on social media about embracing the daily grind. (laughs) They busy themselves with continued self-improvement, whether that's through continued time in the gym, continued education, or doing whatever they can to better themselves. And let me say very clearly, that's not a bad thing to want to better yourself. In fact, we as believers should be doing that. We should be keeping our bodies healthy. We should be working towards being good stewards of the educational resources that God gives us. We should be model employees and be working to provide for our families and use the wealth God gives us for kingdom purposes. The problem in and of itself are not the shades of that philosophy that we find. The problem is when people like my friend that I mentioned or like these people that Paul was witnessing to put our identities in these things where we pursue them instead of pursuing a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, instead of glorifying him as one of his children. These philosophies that these people were holding to really aren't much different than the people that we interact with today. Their gods may look a little bit different, but yet they're still there for us today as everyone worships something. And these people in Athens were people who were educated, They were religious, yet their philosophy and ways of living were tied up solely in themselves. And that as well showed up in their theology, as next we see that the people of Athens worshipped unknown gods. Paul then has this great opportunity to share with these people. And as he shares, he begins by connecting with these people on a personal level where it says in verses 22 to 23, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The people of Athens worshipped unknown gods, and Paul connects with these people as the audience that he's speaking to, for the best that we can tell, is a Gentile audience. We can base that on the fact that they had polytheistic, they believed in multiple god beliefs. Typically a Jew was going to believe in one god, not multiple gods But Paul couldn't connect his message then to the Old Testament as he would often do here with these people because it wasn't going to hold the same weight or attract them in the same way. No, instead, he's going to focus on something else. He's going to focus on them, it says, being very religious in every respect, as verse 23 shares with us as he saw the art, as he saw the architecture, as he saw the various gods that the people would worship, he said, you guys are very religious. You have a God of water, a God of the harvest, a God who you believe will financially bless you. And yet it shares with us that he even found an altar to an unknown God that the people made to make sure that they didn't unintentionally offend a deity that they didn't know existed and failed to worship. And it's a bit of divine speculation on my behalf, but I'm going to guess that that's one of the reasons why these smart religious people were very interested in what Paul had to say, because they wanted to make sure that this unknown God that they worshipped wasn't this God that Paul worshipped that they hadn't heard of before. Yet notice what Paul did here. He did not begin his conversation by telling these people that they were going to face eternal damnation in hell if they did not repent and believe in the known God that he shared about. No, he saves judgment for later on in his talk as he knew that this was likely going to turn off these scholarly religious people. He instead begins by sharing something that that he could admire about them. He admired their fervency and their religious lifestyle, but he doesn't spend long on that as he quickly shifts his attention to clearly and thoroughly sharing truths about the God that he worshiped and dismantling many of the beliefs that these people shared. Next we see that Paul worshiped, number four, the known God. These people worshiped gods that were unknown But yet, as Paul shares with us here, he shares that at the end of 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about my God. He shares in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul, first of all, shares with these people that there is one God, not many gods, And he emphatically states that this one God can be known. And God can be known by making the world and everything in it. He shares with these people that nothing has been or ever will have been made that was not made by God. From the air these people were breathing to the chairs that you're sitting in today, everything has been made, given life, and given to us by our creator. Colossians 1:17 shares with us that he is before all things and in him, in God, all things hold together. Next, we see that God is sovereign, that he is Lord over all. Not only did he create all things. The second part of that verse shares with us that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And as we see that there, we see that not only did God create all things, but that he rules, that he reigns, that he is sovereign over them. And contrary to what these people believed, there were not many gods ruling over specific parts of nature. No, there was one God ruling over all, both the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God is enthroned in the heavens and is sovereignly over all of creation. From the smallest of insects to the most powerful ruler, from the deepest valley to the highest mountaintop, God is Lord over all things. God reigns supreme over all. And finally, he continues to blow their mind at the end of this verse as he shares that God is self sufficient. It shares that he does not live in temples made by man, moving on to verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is self sufficient. Now, theologically, we call this aseity. The theologian John Frame says this, that God's aseity means that he is sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside of himself. God is completely independent in and of himself. He needs no help. And that's the complete opposite of you and I, as we can't imagine one moment of one day being outside of God's provision and help. God doesn't need us. He does not live in temples made of man, this says. He didn't need the creation of this art or this architecture or these false idols that these people had created. In fact, if these people had a proper theology and had they built true buildings that reflected the true God, even then he wouldn't be impressed by it. He doesn't need it. God is not dependent on man in any way, shape, or form. And there is nothing that you or I have or that we can do that God needs. And I'm sure that this was something that these people probably, as they heard it, struggled with in some ways. But as we get to know our Heavenly Father, it's something that I think we can find as a relief. As I can't do anything to make God love me. He just does. I can't do anything to merit God's favor. The Bible shares with me that God is absolute in his love. He literally can't love me one more bit than he does. There is nothing that we have that God needs, and yet he has a purpose for creating us. He has done so out of love with a purpose and Paul shares that with these people that God created one blood. He gives to light to mankind life, breath, and everything. In verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. All nations And all people have come from one common ancestor, Adam. Paul hit to the heart of any particular nation, of any particular race superiority here. And he was hitting at the Greeks in this superiority that they likely felt as they were educated, as they were cultured, as they were above And he shared that not only did we all descend from Adam, but that God in his sovereignty determined the nations. He determined where they would be located. He determined how long they would rule and reign. It was all under God's purview. This verse reminds us of God's providence, of his sovereign reign. Truly no one or no thing is outside of God's sovereign reign. All things... And as is the focus here, all people have been and will be created at and in his perfect timing and for his purposes. God created one blood, and he is sovereign and providential in doing so. Yet complementing this verse are the following three, which really make the central focus of Paul's speech And that's this, that God created man to seek him. God created man to seek after God. It shares with us in verses 27 through 29 that we should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Not only are all people created in God's perfect timing, but they are created with purpose. Man's purpose is to seek after God. I love the way that French mathematician Blaise Pascal shared this, as he shared that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Here in this text, we see this tension that we often wrestle with, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. As God created all men in his perfect timing, yet each man has a responsibility to seek after and to find God. Paul's words here would connect well with the Stoics, who are always working towards self-improvement. As man's responsibility is to feel around the, around the world that God created and to try to find their way to him. But yet, God in his grace, we can see as we seek him, it shares with us, that he is all places and at the same time, he is not all far off from us. He is, as the Bible tells us, omnipresent. God is all places at all times. And God has created men to seek after him. He isn't some distant and unapproachable God he isn't anything like these gods that these people held to he is present all the time with us closer than our closest friend or companion and we are created by his glory interestingly as we move there to verse 28 it says in him we move, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said and what Paul is referring to here is, again, he's making a connection that these people are going to understand. He's not making that Old Testament connection. Instead, what he's doing here is adapting his message to his audience as he's turning the words that were written from, a pagan, from pagan Greek writers words that were written to the Greek god Zeus, and he is attributing them where they rightly belong to the one true known God, the God that Paul spoke about. Our lives are created for God, and as verse 29 shares, neither man nor God is made of gold, silver, stone, or anything like that. We are made with something that is much more precious than any precious metal that we could dig up or purchase today. We are made in God's image, and we are the only creation that has that responsibility, and I have been given that gift. Man understands about himself that there's more to us than just the physical. Physical. So even more so, we should understand that about God, and Paul here is pointing to the absurdity of the idolatry that these people had. But yet he continues his message by pointing these people towards their need of a Savior so that they can have a relationship with God. He shares with them that we are God's offspring, but we must put our faith in God through Jesus Christ in order to be one of his sons and daughters. That is because finally we see that God is just. God created one blood and his providence and his perfect timing. He created man to seek after him. And God is a just God as he is absolute in all of his attributes He is absolutely and completely just, a God of divine justice. It shares with us in verses 30 through 31 that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day, a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. God is a God of divine and perfect justice. He has fixed a day of which the date only he knows, and he has sent his son Jesus Christ so that when that day comes, as Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, if we choose to accept instead of reject Jesus Christ as Lord, We will be spared from eternal damnation. Paul's message here was confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That same message that remains true for us today, that we're looking forward to celebrating in a couple weeks here in Easter in three weeks. Now what Paul encouraged these people to do is to repent. And repentance comes from the Greek word meaning to change the mind. And for these people, to repent would mean that they would have to change their mind regarding worshiping the gods that they held to, and they would have to put their trust in Jesus Christ alone and not in any other God for their salvation. And that message is the same for us today, that we have to repent. And you may say, Brad, how do I do that? How do i make jesus christ my lord well the first thing that i would encourage you to do is to accept what are you accepting we well, are accepting what john 14 6 says where it says jesus said to him i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me you must accept the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and salvation can be found only in him. It's not through any other God. It's not through making a bunch of money. It's not through doing all moral good. It's through Jesus Christ. In fact, Acts 4.12 shares with us that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, the heaven that we saw that God created and dwells in, given among men by which we must be saved. It's all about Jesus and his gift that he gave to us. It can't be found anywhere else. So we accept that Jesus is God's son, and in him alone we can find salvation. But then, after we accept, we believe. We believe, as John three sixteen through 18 shares with us, that God loved the world. How much did he love the world? He loved it so much that he gave his only son. His word tells us that it pleased him to crush his son so that whoever, so that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him and whoever believes in him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It only comes through believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. None of us are too good for that or too bad for that. God has done it for all of us because we were bad. And we can all accept this free gift of salvation. We can all believe. You may say, okay, I accept that Jesus is Lord. I believe these things to be true. So then what? Well, then simply you confess. The Bible says, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we do that by praying to God. And you can today, in your seat, right where you are, even right now, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You can say, God, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and personal Savior. I accept that he died to pay the penalty for my sin, that I cannot pay that. And it's through Jesus Christ alone that I can find salvation. And the Bible says that if you do that, you will be saved. And what I love is there's no other qualifications there. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you've done a lot of good things or a lot of bad things. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church. It matters that you confess and you repent and you believe these things to be true. And yet, as we see this invitation here, we see Paul's invitation in the text. And in Paul's invitation here in the text, we see that the people of Athens chose to either reject, to accept, or to hear more about this good news that Paul shared. Let's look at the final verses here in 32 to 34. It shares with us, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among whom were Dioscorus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What we see here is that the people of Athens chose to reject, accept, or hear more about this good news. Now, interestingly here, we don't see swarms of believers moving forward and following Christ as we often see in the book of Acts. But yet, we do see that there are people who move forward and did. And like Paul, as we share the good news in the marketplace that God gives us, the results that we find are probably going to be similar to what we see here. We're going to share, and maybe a couple people come to Christ, praise the Lord for that. But yet, we don't fully know who all hears this message. As we saw earlier here, Paul was speaking primarily to these authorities, to these scholars, but other people were hearing the good news. And they may then go privately and profess Christ as well, and we don't see all of the fruit of the ministry that we have with other people. So as we conclude our time here together today, a couple things to think about. Number one, let me encourage you in this, that God created you to have a personal relationship with him. So do you. We've given the invitation already today in what you must do to be a follower of Christ. And you have a choice to make. As these people, you choose to accept that, to reject it, Or you can choose to, as some of them did, say, I want to talk more about that. And if you're in the, I want to talk more about that camp, I would encourage you after this service is over to find myself, to find Pastor Aaron, to find an elder. We would love to pair you up with a person here from the church who knows God's word and to share with you how you can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We'd love to answer your questions. In fact, there's people at this church that pay me to do that. It's pretty cool. God created you to have a personal relationship with him. So if you have questions about that, make sure that you ask those questions. Next, though, you say, yeah, Brad, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible shares with us in Romans eleven, twelve. 12, That we're going to give an account to god someday and we will give an account number one for if we have put our trust and faith in christ but we'll also give an account to god for how we steward the opportunities that he gives us and the work that we do and so as we do that then let me ask you this where is your marketplace where is the place Whereas Paul found himself that you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. Are you telling others about Jesus there in that marketplace? Now, the beauty is, all of us have a marketplace. Your marketplace is likely going to look different than mine. It doesn't matter if you're a business professional, if you're a teacher, if you're a farmer, if you're a stay at home mom, if you're just figuring out what you're going to be doing next we all have our marketplace. The place where, just like Paul, we have opportunities to reach others and to share Christ with them. And my guess is that if God puts you in a marketplace like this, that there's going to be some people who are curious about what you believe. My guess is not everyone's going to reject it like here. Not everyone did. Some may even, praise the Lord, accept it. But are you telling others about Jesus Christ there? Are you sharing the good news? And finally then, alongside that, are you prepared to share? I think one of the things that often hinders us from sharing our faith with others is the fact that, like when my friend Mitch asked me, Oh, wait a second here. What do I say to that? What do I believe in that? Now, Paul used a contextualized message to reach his audience. He didn't skimp on his theology, but what he did was practically applied apologetics to reach people for Christ. He shared of who Jesus was. He shared of his theology, but he did so in a way that reached his audience. Do you know your audience? Do you know how you can share your faith with them? There's a reason why we have these classes, why we study God's word here together. There's a reason why we have things outside of Sunday morning services. It's so that we can be well equipped to do these things. There's a reason why why us as pastors have office hours, so that we can help you with these things. If you say, I'm not prepared to share in my marketplace, please get help doing that. One day you will give an account to God. And he will say to you, I gave you these opportunities. What did you do with them? Be prepared to share with other people God's wonderful good news of salvation. Every person and every situation is different, but do you have your plan? And remember that others will be watching and listening, not those who you are just directly talking to. We don't know all the work that God is going to do through our ministry. We just know that he's called us to do it. Let's close our time in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of gathering together here at church this Sunday morning, hearing from your word. And Lord, I pray that these practical truths that we've studied today would be encouraging, would be helpful, and as well would be challenging. Lord, for those who may be here this morning and do not know you as Lord and personal Savior, I pray that you would put a conviction on their heart to not be able to leave this place today without making a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, for those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, I pray that you would help us in the marketplaces that we find ourselves in. Regardless of the stage of life we're in, regardless of the place of work or service we find ourselves in, you have a purpose for that. And our ultimate purpose is to glorify you. So help us to do that in every aspect of our life. Lord, help us to share this good news with others. And as we do so, we know that some are going to laugh at us as they laughed at Paul. Some are going to reject it. But yet some are still searching to fill that God-shaped void in in their hearts. And Lord, we have the answer. Lord, help us to share the answer with others. Help us to be bold yet gracious in doing so. Help us to be wise about how we do so as Paul did. But Lord, I pray that when others look at Delaware Bible Church, they would say, well, they just don't go to church Sunday morning and get really stuffed up and arrogant about themselves. No, that they practice what they preach and that they represent Christ well in their community. Let that be true of us, Lord. Challenge us with these things. Help us to grow in them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.